Lord, bless the teaching of Your Word. May the words that are heard by the heart today be Your words and not mine. I pray that we would be absolutely aware of the times in which we live. People of the light whose eyes are wide open who will not be surprised or caught off guard. But in all these things, Lord, may we be more fascinated by You even than the prophecies we're about to look at. In Jesus' name, Amen. Matthew 17. Actually, we'll begin in verse 28 of Matthew 16 because it's a lead-in to what happens in Matthew 17. If you were here a couple Wednesday nights ago, I realize we already studied this, but it's pertinent to where we're going this morning. We're going to continue on in our prophecy update. Getting uh, fully updated. Actually, we won't. There, there are so many things we could talk about in the realm of prophecy, Bible prophecy, and what's happening in the world around us today. We're just going to do one more Sunday where we focus on this, next week getting back to, uh, to our study through Matthew. But as we consider what's happening in the world, we need to keep eyes wide open because something big is coming. We talked about last week the situation in Gaza. We talked about the prophecy connected to that. We'll move on from there this week. Uh, I'm going to just add to the list of things that we've already jotted down. And I'll remind you of those in case you have forgotten. Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, His brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and He was transfigured before them. And His face shone like the sun. His garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Him, that is, with Jesus. And Peter said to the Lord, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus said to them, He came to them and touched them and said, Get up, do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus Himself alone. Peter, James, and John were given an amazing vision. A preview of the coming attraction to beat all coming attractions. And as we're told in verse 28 of chapter 16, before any of these three tasted death, they did indeed see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Jesus in the glorified state with which He would come. They were able to look at Jesus and see the way He was before He came to the world. The way He would be after the resurrection. Glorified, amazing, transfigured before their very eyes. But John would see it again. In Revelation 19, and you can flip over there, probably the easiest book after Genesis in the Bible to find. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7. John is toward the end now of this fantastic vision that he received on the island of Patmos, there in the Aegean Sea, where he saw Jesus coming in his kingdom. 
another fulfillment of Jesus' words that, that some here would not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. This is exactly what John is seeing. And in verse 7 we're told, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he told me, Do not do that. I'm I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And check this out. I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who is it John is seeing? Jesus Christ. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that by it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the wine press of the, fe- press of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this is what we're looking forward to. This preview of coming attractions game, we will see. We will behold Jesus in all of His glory. We will have the same experience of Peter, James, and John, and later John. We will be blown away as we see Jesus in all His splendor, in all His heavenly raiment, in all of His glory. This is what we have to look forward to. My son Hayden, is Hayden in here or is he at class? Good. My son has a looking forward to problem. He does. Friday, we were heading out to go to dinner, go to a movie, come back home, open his birthday presents. He's 12 years old and all of it. And he had a friend that was going to spend the night. The whole thing was planned. It was great. And in the van on the way out there, he discovered tragically that his friend would not be spending two nights. And he was just so bummed. And I turned around while driving and said, Hayden, don't you understand that what's going on here is you're missing out on now because you're, you're so worried about something not happening in the future that you're, look, you're looking ahead and not getting what you think you want and now you're missing what's going on and there's great stuff happening here. And we're so like that, you know. Um, he had a friend spin last night too, so he kind of got both because he talked his weak-minded, weak-willed parents into it. <laughs> but we have something to look forward to, gang, that is absolutely assured, unchanging, it will happen such that we don't have to worry that maybe we won't get the sleepover. That maybe we won't have the opportunity to see Jesus and to experience this. And I believe, as I've shared many times, even since the beginning of the bridge, that we're close. Definitely closer now than we were five years ago. Think about that. Deep thoughts with Pastor Rick. So we're looking forward to Jesus as He is. And that's the purpose of Bible prophecy. It all points us to Jesus. That's the purpose of taking time to do a prophecy update. To know where we are. To understand the signs, as Jesus said last week, we talked about this, Matthew 16. The signs of the times. What's going on around us? 
Where are we in the vast scheme of things? What are the signs of the times or the fact that we need to move the refrigerator? What is it that is before us to reveal to us His imminent return? And that's what we're in the middle of. We're in the middle of this prophecy update. Last week we talked about what I believe is the most significant sign of the 20th century, the rebirth of Israel. That sign that snapped the eyes wide open of students of Bible prophecy and Christians the world over to say, something is happening here that was prophesied thousands of years ago. Ezekiel talked about all the people being regathered into the nation. We have watched this influx. It's been absolutely amazing. Last week we talked about a more recent prophetic sign. Now I personally believe that this is exactly what... Zephaniah the prophet was talking about in in Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 4. We looked at last week the withdrawal from Gaza. The abandonment of the land that the Lord had given to Israel that Zephaniah in chapter 2 verse 4 said would immediately precede the coming of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. What is that? That's the tribulation. The Bible talks about a seven year period of time where God pours out His wrath on a Christ rejecting world. It's called the day of the Lord. The time of Jacob's trouble. The day of the Lord's wrath. And Zephaniah prophesied that just prior to that, Israel, not only back in the land, would abandon Gaza itself. Literally that little strip of land, that 25 mile long strip, as we looked at last week. That may very well have been then the fulfillment of Zephaniah's prophecy, which puts us even more in my mind closer to the time when we're going to see the glorified Jesus. Ariel Sharon was Prime Minister back in 2005 of Israel. And along with two-thirds majority of the security cabinet, two-thirds of the Knesset, and two-thirds of the people of Israel, they made that decision to pull out of Gaza and give it over to the Palestinians to put it completely into their hands. Now, things are a little more quiet today in Gaza than they were last Sunday, at least as far as I know. might get home this afternoon and find out just the opposite. But Israel initiated a unilateral peace Agreement, or at least a unilateral ceasefire, which means the Palestinians, Hamas, did not agree to this. Israel just said, we will stop for now. But things remain highly unstable and volatile, and Gaza remains in the hands of the Palestinians, abandoned, given up by Israel, as Zephaniah said would be the case. Well, I want to keep rolling this morning with a few more trigger points. Things to watch for in these last days. If you're keeping track, if you're taking notes, we've covered three so far. The rebirth of Israel, the rejection of Gaza, and the refusal of sound doctrine, which we briefly covered, but the reality that in the world today and in the church, there is less and less and less Bible teaching. Less and less doctrinal understanding of what's going on. I had a conversation just after uh, last hour with a couple who's, who's driving up from south of Coopville. And he was talking about the fact that, that once again, I keep hearing this, that there are so few churches that are just teaching the Word. Now, I don't say that to elevate us. You want to know why I spend so much time teaching the Word? Because I'm too dumb to come up with anything else. (laughs) You know, I was thinking about the the quest for authentic manhood that a lot of our guys are going through right now. And Robert Lewis, he's put this thing together and it's brilliant. It's really intelligent. And And I sat there Friday going, now why don't I make a video series? Because I'm too stupid. I can't do it. You know, but I can teach the Word because it's right here for us. And so we're in the Word and we're spending time there. But what I continue to hear is not only churches not in the Word, but the refusal of sound doctrine. 
this, uh, this young man who was talking to me, we were talking about youth ministry and how, many, how so many youth pastors have this, this tendency to, you know, the further away you get from the Word, the more you can tend to be floaty about your spirituality. The less grounded you are in truth and the more tolerant you are of anything. And there's a danger in that, the refusal of sound doctrine. Well, I won't continue on with that. You know how I feel there. Number four on our list. Number four is something, gang, that has not happened until this generation. Something that the Bible said would happen, but that has never been seen before now. Which again is another reason why we say this is a a point of interest, a trigger point for Bible prophecy. And that is the reality of weapons of mass destruction. Oh, I know it's old news. You know, weapons of mass destruction, they weren't found in Iraq, so why even talk about that? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the reality that weapons of mass destruction exist in the world today and never have before this generation of time. The future, uh, well, former and possibly future Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu last week in the midst of the Gaza crisis stated that the biggest terror threat to both Israel and the world today is not Hamas. It's not Hamas. It's not Hezbollah. It's rogue nations and their pursuit of nuclear power. It's Iran. Nobody is paying attention to this. It seems like the world media and even the new Obama administration is interested in diplomacy. Do you know what diplomacy means in the Middle East? More time to do what we're already doing. More time to develop our weapons of mass destruction. Go ahead, we'll talk. We'll meet with you. We'll talk. That just gives us time. Rogue nations in their pursuit of nuclear power, weapons of mass destruction. Iran's Ahmadinejad, in response to Israel's fight against Hamas, said just last week, January 15th, Israel's continued existence in the region is not feasible. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that he thinks they should give up Gaza, that they should give up the West Bank. Their existence as a people is not feasible. Does anyone question the intentions of this one leader in this tiny little country that really doesn't matter much? (laughs) Persia, Iran. Such threatening rhetoric is actually kind of typical in the Arab world. I don't know if you've noticed, when we first went into Iraq and Saddam Hussein was talking about how America was going to be met with this massive wall of fire, you know, and so we're looking for it, you know. Found him in a hole without even as much as a match. (laughs) But the rhetoric that we see coming out of the Middle East, that's very typical, and you can trace it all the way back. This is kind of a language of warfare among the Arabs, and I'm not making fun of the Arabic world, this is, but it's just that they talk big. They always have. No big deal, right? It is a big deal when there are weapons of mass destruction on hand. It is a big deal when a leader like Ahmadinejad actually has nuclear power and says Israel does not need to exist, it's not feasible, we need to wipe them off, little Satan needs to be gone, and then we'll go for the big Satan America. That's not just talk anymore. It's an extreme and serious threat. The reality of weapons of mass destruction. On the morning of July 16, 1945, at precisely 5.29 and 45 seconds, 100 feet above the southern New Mexico desert, in a place called Jornada del Muerto, the first nuclear bomb was successfully detonated. At that detonation, J. Robert Oppenheimer, one of the architects of that nuclear bomb, watching the fireball and the mushroom cloud emerge out of the earth, quoted from the Hindu Bible, and he said, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. 
Oppenheimer realized something at that point. Many people did. I am death, the destroyer of worlds. We now have a weapon capable of destroying entire countries. We now have a weapon on the face of the planet capable of wiping out the entire world. One country shoots one nuke, another country responds, a third country responds, and in no time, this world could be devastated. Now, I'm not talking about this to bring you down this morning. Relax. You look so serious. In previous generations, it was hard to imagine such a weapon weapon even existing. And yet, the Bible predicted with absolute accuracy that this would be the case in the last days. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 21, There will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And by the way, let me just throw this in. That verse verse tells me that the... uh, fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 to Rome could not have been the great tribulation that Jesus is talking about. Why is that? Because it's something he said that had not occurred until then, nor ever would. And the Holocaust gang was worse. So either Jesus was wrong, or AD 70 is not what he was talking about. The great tribulation, a time yet to come, such as not has occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, Matthew 24, 22. Listen to this. He said, unless those days had been cut short, no life would be saved. And the word for life there is flesh. There is a time frame that is set around this period called the tribulation, the day of the Lord. It's seven years. According to Daniel and Revelation both, it's a seven-year time period. And Jesus says, if that wasn't set... If it wasn't cut short, in other words, not allowed to go on to 10 years or 15 years, no one in the world would survive it. Weapons of mass destruction. Revelation chapter 8, verse 6 tells us seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. They were thrown down to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Might that be a description of a nuclear holocaust? Possibly. Now granted that also in times prior to weapons of mass destruction, people would say, well that's the power of God. It's the hand of God meeting out judgment. And very well may be. But it's an interesting picture of what exactly happens when a nuclear bomb is detonated. Fire, hail, and blood. Fire is the key element there. And the detonation of one of our mid-sized nuclear warheads, gang would result in a massive firewall that would move at 250 to 300 miles an hour, a thousand miles square from where it's detonated. Everything would be obliterated. And that's one of our mid-sized nukes, just one. What about hail? Fire, blood, and hail. I mean, I understand the blood, tragically, but what about the hail? When we detonated in another test situation, a nuclear bomb in the Bikini Atolls, the islands in the South Seas, when that went off, the American warships that were gathered far enough away to be at a safe safe difference were pounded by hailstones that came out of the sky as a result of the detonation of the nuclear bomb. There is a a tremendous and amazing accuracy in in this book game goes on in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 12. Check this verse out. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot as they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongue will rot in their mouth. It's a graphic description of exactly what happens to human flesh as a result of a neutron bomb. And these things, biblical, scriptural things, have been stated 
Zechariah, 400 years, 450 years or so before Christ. Weapons of mass destruction. You might read it back in the days before WMDs and go, I'm not sure how that can happen. I'm not sure how that can take place. You know, that must be for a time yet future. And here we are. Furthermore, gang, in the history of war and weaponry, there has never been a weapon devised by man that has not been used by the country who devised it. America? We wouldn't use one. Really? Have we forgotten? We did. On another country. Hiroshima. Nagasaki. We detonated nuclear bombs. We have them. We used them. And it's possible they may be used again. But imagine this technology in the hands of an unstable Ahmadinejad. Or as Jim likes to call him, my mood, I'm in a jihad. (laughs) Now what's interesting to me, speaking of hot-headedness, there's an interesting development in the Arab world that's going on today that will lead us into the next point. But remember, just the emergence here of weapons of mass destruction is something to keep an eye on. But there's something else happening in the Middle East. just popped up last week, January 19th. The headline in Arutz Sheva magazine for Israel said, Arab world facing collapse. What? That caught my attention. Here's how it reads. Saudi Arabia's foreign minister, Saud al-Faisal, and Arab League Secretary General, Amr Musa, speaking at a joint press conference in Kuwait on Monday, said that the Arab world faces anarchy and an inner split, which they attributed to two factors. The inter-Palestinian struggle, inter-Palestinian, between Hamas in Gaza and Fatah in the West Bank. The fight between the Palestinians for, for rule has the Arab world split in terms of their support. Did you know, even though Fatah was not supportive of Israel in the incursion into Gaza, this most recent war, even though Fatah was not supportive, they also were not supportive of Hamas. They very quietly sat back. I think uh, Mahmoud Abbas, leader of Fatah, wanting <laughs> to see them diminished in their ability to, to reign over, over the Palestinian people. But there's causing an interesting split in the Arab world. They also attribute it to Israeli aggression and occupation. I love that. For even now, though Israel went against Gaza to stop the firing of the missiles, they have not occupied it. They don't want it back. Which again is part of Zephaniah's prophecy, the abandonment of Gaza. They've given it up, and I don't believe Israel will take it back again. But it raises an interesting question when you think about the deep divides that are beginning to show up between more moderate Muslim nations and more extreme Muslim nations, Syria and Iran, very extreme. But there are others. United Arab Emirates that are a little more Kuwait. There are some others that are a little less extreme. No, they'll join in the rhetoric, but they're, they, they want to be players on the world stage. And there's a divide that is increasing between the two. And so this question arises, who in the Middle East has the power and the ability to unify the Arab world against Israel, to bring them all back together? And the answer is, the sleeping bear is waking up. Number five in your list, the return of Mother Russia. The return of Mother Russia. August 2008, we saw the first act of overt aggression since the Cold War when, in, when Russia invaded South Ossetia, Georgia. And suddenly we were snapped to attention. Russia's back to her old tricks. Vladimir Putin at the helm. Well, Vladimir Putin's not at the helm anymore. Oh, yes he is. <laughs> December 17th. 2008, something that went probably largely unnoticed in the media, Russia shipped 500 S-300 missiles to Iran. And Russia continues building today. As we're talking, Russia is at work building Iran's nuclear reactor. It is Russia who is supporting this. 
It's Russia who's sending the money, the funds, the, the intelligence to get this thing done. By the way, Iran's nuclear reaction is slated to be up and running within a year. So back at the beginning of the Bush administration, in the early 2000s, we were talking about, boy, you know, it could be coming 2005, 2009, maybe 2010. It could be coming. We've got to be careful. We've got to stop this now. Diplomacy, diplomacy, diplomacy. It's gotten us nowhere, and the reactor is just about done. In January, this month of this year, 2009, Russia cut off natural gas supply to the European Union because of a pipeline dispute with the Ukraine. This is something that I didn't even know was going on. It just kind of caught my eyes in the newspaper. Gas wars, they're calling it. And it's not because of a bad meal. Gas wars, the natural <laughs> gas that's being transported from Russia to the European Union through the Ukraine, a big argument and fight, and literally in the European Union, which relies on Russia for one quarter of all their natural gas supplies, several of the countries were shut down in terms of natural gas in the worst time of the year, in wintertime. Can you imagine the United States if we had all of a sudden a shortage of gas or no natural gas whatsoever? We'd freak out. For the last couple of weeks in the European Union, they have not had natural gas. People freezing in their homes. Russia asserting herself. Now there's been a deal struck to get the natural gas flowing again to the European Union. But keep your eyes on Russia. You might ask the question, what's going on with Russia? What is doing? Winston Churchill referred to Russia as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, which is a good description. But the future of this mysterious, enigmatic riddle is completely opened out wide for us to understand in the book of Ezekiel. Turn over there. Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 1. Now, I'm going to read through a few verses here. I just want to give you some context for this as we talk again about these trigger points of prophecy update. But there's a more in-depth teaching on this if you want to check it out. Ezekiel 36, 37, and 38. Uh, prophecy update from 2007. You'll get more information there if you're interested. That's on the website. Ezekiel 38 in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. By the way, if you're looking for it, it's right about there. Kind of in the middle. I got page 709. I don't know what page you guys have the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. Gog is a title, by the way. It's not a name. You're not looking for some guy named Gog. It's, it's like a president or leader or prince. That's what Gog means. It's more of a title than a name. It says, I'm against you. I will turn you about, verse 4, and put hooks into your jaws. I'll bring you out. And all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired. And by the way, Russia's army is very dependent on horseback. In fact, they have a whole battalion or larger now of, of, of guys who are being trained to fight on horseback. Well, why would you do that in today's world? Because in the rugged terrain of Russia and on down to the south, even heading toward Israel, horseback makes a whole lot more sense than a tank does at times. So they've got a whole army that now is mobilized on horses. Reading on. It says, All of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. And then he adds this, Persia, Ethiopia, and Put with them. All of them with, sword, with shield and helmet. Gomer with all his troops. Beth to Garma from the remotest parts of the north with all his troops. Many people with you. So who are we talking about here? Rosh is Russia. It's where the word Russia comes from. Rosh. Meshach, Moscow. Tubal, Tubolsk. 
So Gog in the land of Magog, Magog is very clearly Russia, and there's much more that I won't go into this morning to indicate and explain to us, and we can know clearly and historically that, that Magog is Russia being talked about here. But it goes on and mentions Persia, which many of you Bible students know is Iran. They were Persia all the way up until the mid-1930s when finally they changed their name to the Republic of Iran. But that is Persia. Anytime you see Persia in Scripture, it's Iran being talked about. Ethiopia there. It literally, in some of your Bibles, it says Kush. And that may include both current Ethiopia and the Islamic genocidal region of the Sudan. That's encompassed in what the Bible calls Kush. Put, in your Bibles there, is Libya. Gomer and Beth Tagarma. Literally, Beth Tagarma means house of the far north. It's Turkey. Turkey. Well, Turkey's pretty moderate. We don't hear much problem coming from them, especially toward Israel, do we? Well, if, if, you, if you heard recently, there was a, a big to-do in the kitchen of the United Nation where Turkey was spilled and Greece got all over everything. And big mess. And in moments like this, we say, read on. <laughs> Verse 7, be prepared and prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. That word guard is literally be a spear point. You go ahead. You lead the charge, Magog, that is Russia, along with Iran, along with these other countries involved. By the way, one other thing about Turkey, I don't know if you knew this, Turkey has significantly moved away from support of Israel. In fact, the country of Turkey is calling for Israel to be banned from the United Nations meetings. So there is a move away from Israel and toward Mother Russia happening in Turkey even now. Verse 8. After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword. Whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations. And they are living securely, all of them. Two interesting things to note in verse 8 there. Two Hebrew phrases. The first one is where it says the latter years. It's the only time in Scripture where that is being used. The latter years. The phrase is akarith shana. And it literally means the end of the end. The last of the last days. The tail end of all things. But you might have noticed at the end of this verse, it said that they were living securely. All of them. So if you say, wow, does Israel look like it's living securely today? Boy, I don't know. Israel is living more securely now than in their entire history uh, since 1948. Because of their power, because of their own inner stability, they are in a place of more security than they have ever been before. And it's interesting, Benjamin Netanyahu, again, in talking about this war with Gaza, he was talking on the news show, this was last week, and he made this this statement and then kind of retracted it and and revised it. He said, yeah, we're unleashing the full force and and fury of the IDF on, and he goes, well, you know, not really the full force and fury. Actually, not even much of our full force and fury. An indication of what he was saying, and speaking, I think, loud and clear across the airwaves, is we've got far more power than we're using on little Gaza right now. Don't mess with Israel. That's what Netanyahu was saying. So they are living securely, at least by comparison. But what's interesting, this word securely is not what you might think. Shalom, peace, living peacefully. It's the word betak in the Hebrew, which means living carelessly. Living carelessly. Living in a place where they're saying, you know, if we could just get peace here and peace there, if we just strike an agreement with the Palestinians, two-state solution, we can live securely. And it's a careless thought. 
Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2, he said, You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. While living securely. Read on, verse 9. Verse 9 tells us, You will go up, you will come like a storm, you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many people with you. Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that the thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. You will say, I'll go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go up against those who are at rest that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates. If you've seen Israel's security fence, you might think, oh, well, there's a, there's a chink in the, in the prophecy right there. Because that fence is a big wall. And it is huge, especially between Bethlehem and, and Jerusalem. A huge, massive place, and it's difficult to get by. Cheryl and I know, we almost didn't get back in last time we were there. Massive stone wall. The, the, the Palestinians on the West Bank are calling the Berlin Wall. They're comparing it to that wall. And it is a massive security fence, a massive security wall, cutting down on terrorism, by the way, 98% since it was built. So what can Ezekiel mean if he says that Russia or Magog is going to attack a land of unwalled villages? It'll be interesting, but I'm going to stake my bet on the fact that international world pressure is going to cause that wall to come down. I think that'll happen. I think the land of Israel, they're going to strike the deal. There's going to be the two-state solution, Palestinian state, Israeli state, and they're going to say part of the deal is get rid of the wall. You got it. The wall will come down and Russia will seize the opportunity. And the invasion will happen. Verse 12 tells us that they will uh, go up against this to capture spoil and seize plunder, to turn the hand against the waste places which are now inhabited, against the people who are gathered from the nations, who have acquired cattle and goods, who live at the center of the world. Why would Russia attack Israel? Why would Russia care about Israel? Well, if you took the word spoil and remove the SP, you might be close. Now, of course, Golda Meir made the comment, Moses dragged us for 40 years through the desert to bring us to the one place in the Middle East where there was no oil. And that's been kind of the joke among Israelis. No oil. And yet, Bible prophecy indicates that the land of Naphtali, I believe it was Naphtali, says you're going to dip your foot in oil. And because of that, of that quote in uh, Genesis 49, I believe, because of that quote, Oil speculators are all over Israel looking for oil and have been for quite a while. Trying to find it. They found a little bit, a little bit here and there. But Russia will need something that Israel has. Guess what happened last week in Israel? Just off the coast, Israel's Delec Fuel Company announced the discovery of three massive deposits of natural gas, possibly the largest deposits of natural gas in the world. What was Russia having a problem with the Ukraine about? natural gas. Israel now has something huge Russia wants. The Israelis saying this is a massive breakthrough for us. This will bring about, I mean, think about the riches of Israel. They're going to export. They're already talking about exporting natural gas. They're going to have plenty for themselves. They won't rely on anybody else to bring it to them. Now little Israel will become even more self-sufficient, even more secure, even more careless. Suddenly, Israel is in control of great spoils. Bottom line is this. According to Ezekiel, a Russian-Iranian-led coalition against Israel will invade Israel in days to come. 
Vladimir Putin said in September of 2003, we view the Arab and Islamic world through the greater part of modern history as being our closest partners and associates. Well, I have this to say. It's just my opinion, but I don't believe the Lord is going to be Putin up with Russia much longer. <laughs> Let's look a little closer to home. <laughs> Things happening the world over, we've had some interesting occurrence in our country in the last few months, haven't we? An amazing, unparalleled election season. Uh, capturing the attention of more Americans than any, at least in my lifetime. And the rise of a young man who no one saw coming. I mean, think about it. He gave his first speech at the Democratic National Convention, what was it, in 2004? And after the speech, which was amazingly well received, people started saying, this guy's got it. This could be the guy. And in the last four years, boom, Barack Obama has gone from, who is this guy from, you know? Community organizer. From community organizer to President of the United States, President Barack Obama. And because of this, in the Christian world, there's been a lot of speculation. And I've heard it coming. And I've heard conversations, people coming up and, and asking me, going, Rick, do you think he's the guy? <laughs> Jesus? No, I don't. <laughs> do you think he's the other guy? Is Barack Obama, I'm going to say it out loud, is he the Antichrist? Now, if you're a Democrat and you're sitting here this morning, hey man, I love you. As much as I love you Republicans sitting here this morning, this is not a political statement. Okay, We want to remain biblical. And so we have eyes open to what's going on around. And we have this, this election. The 44th President of the United States, and when he was re- elected the next day, this came out in the news to some observers, the international reaction to Barack Obama's election has elevated him to an unparalleled post, President of the World. President of the World. Now again, hear me on this. I'm not getting political. What has impressed me more than the rise of Barack Obama, more than the fact that he now stands as America's president, what impresses me, number six in your notes, is the reception of a ruler. It's the world's reaction to the man. Have we ever seen the world respond so favorably, so incredibly, people enamored to see him? Do you remember during the election when he went to uh, Europe? When he came to Paris, and, and they set up there in Paris these massive widescreen TVs, and 200,000 Parisians came to see this guy. I, I was stunned at the reception. This is before he was even elected. And right now, the world clamoring Barack Obama, he's our man. If he can't do it, he can't. You know, I mean. <laughs> No man has that ability, gang, but the world is responding in a way that prepares all of the world to be deceived. If the world will accept Barack Obama this way, is it inconceivable that they will accept the rise of a rule of a world ruler who brings peace to the Middle East, who sets himself up as the answer, as the hope of the nations? It's very conceivable. The reception of a ruler enamored by mankind. Now, I'm not about making comparisons between Antichrist and Barack Obama. In fact, I honestly think if you look at what the Bible has to say about Antichrist, Barack leaves the running. Now, that's my personal opinion. 
And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I hope I'm not. And I am, by the way, praying for Barack Obama. Please pray for our president. Please continue to pray for him. Don't pray that he burns in hell. I mean, man. Oh, I'm praying for him, all right. Cling to my Bible and my religion. <laughs> Pray that he hears the voice of God. You know, he, he asked Rick Warren, it was interesting, he asked Rick Warren to, to do the opening prayer at the inauguration. I haven't seen it. I've heard that he started the prayer naming Jesus in multiple names. Yeshua, Jesus, Jesus. Awesome. Yes. Way to go, Rick. You know? Turn to the book of Daniel. It's one book over from Ezekiel. I want to quickly, in the time we have left, point out a couple of characteristics, a few characteristics of Antichrist. Hear what the Bible has to say about this coming world ruler that the Word says will rise and will capture the imagination of the world and will be in the post of president of the world, of world dictator. Now, as you're turning there, Daniel chapter 8, verse 21, and I'm not going to get way into this. It deals with a dream that Daniel had, and the dream is, is amazing. But it indicates in this dream that this world ruler will rise, will rise out of Greece. In Eastern Europe. I hadn't caught that before, just this last week. But, but looking at the background of Antichrist, he'll rise out of either Greece or Rome. Daniel 9.26 refers to the Antichrist as the leader of the people who destroyed Israel in AD 70, which is Rome. So we kind of say, okay, somewhere in that region of the world, an Eastern European background will be the background of the Antichrist. But Daniel chapter 8, verse 23 reads the following. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, Jesus says, when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, a king will arise, insolent, skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. The word perform may indicate a connection to witchcraft in this guy. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. At ease. Living carelessly. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. In other words, no man is going to take Antichrist down. He'll be broke without human agency. Some things to note about Antichrist. He will be insolent, intriguing, and influential. He will be unlike any world ruler before him, although he'll probably have attributes of great world rulers before him. He will have the ability to stir up a crowd to manipulate the way people think, to to attract people to his vision and what he wants to accomplish unlike anyone before him. And the world will be enamored. And again, prior to the last four years, I've always wondered, how could the world be enamored with one guy? And we have that evidence before us now for the first time. Verse 36 of chapter 11. Skip over to chapter 11. Chapter 11 and verse 36 couple more verses in my, you know there's so much more we could talk about here but I just want to give you the, the gist of this then the king will do as he pleases he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods 
And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Something to note about Antichrist. He'll do whatever he pleases. Unlike Jesus Christ, by contrast, who said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, your will be done. When Jesus came to this world, he came in absolute submission. He came as a servant. He came willing to do whatever the Father called for, even if that meant His own extreme self-sacrifice. What Heather talked about this morning, the love of Christ as seen in the cross. That's Jesus. Antichrist is going to do His thing. Jesus Christ, Philippians 2.7, emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Antichrist does what He wants. Jesus did what the Father wanted. Antichrist will exalt himself and the Bible tells us he will speak monstrous things against God. This guy is going to be an overt blasphemer. He's not going to be like the politicians we see today who express faith in God, who go to the national prayer service. He's he's going to overtly stand up and say, there is no God. I'm God. I'm I'm your only hope. I'm the one who can bring it all together for you. There is no God. He will be a blasphemer. He'll speak monstrous things against God. And he'll be all about his own prosperity. Verse 37 tells us a couple more very interesting things. It says, He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. By the way, the word God there is not plural. He will show no regard for the God of his fathers. That is a distinctly Jewish phrase. The God of his fathers. For a Jew to say the God of his fathers, he meant the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of my fathers. And it makes some Bible commentators wonder if possibly Antichrist will, like Hitler, have Jewish blood running through his veins. Out of Greece, or Rome, an Eastern European leader, rising up with a Jewish background. Possibly. Antichrist, it tells us also, says he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women. This guy is going to be so focused on power that either he has no time or use for women or he may possibly be homosexual. That is not difficult to infer from that verse. Ultimately, Antichrist is going to set himself up as God. He will magnify himself above them all. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's all the way toward the end of the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you guys had planned ahead, you would have put a little green marker in it, like me. (laughs) 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul is writing a letter to the church at Thessalonica. I pointed this out before, but again, in the interest of getting focused here and understanding something of this character... This man rising up named Antichrist. And by the way, he's not going to have a t-shirt that says, Hello, I'm Antichrist. And he's not going to have a little, you know, pitchfork tail and horns. He's going to come off as an amazing human being. In fact, he will be a human being. The whole 666 thing, John explained that. He says 666 is just the number of a man pointing out that Antichrist will be a man, will be a human being, demon-possessed and ultimately Satan-possessed. But Paul has this to say. Verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 2. Now we request you, brethren, by regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, are the church being raptured, called up, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, 
to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Someone in Thessalonica was circulating a letter or a message saying the tribulation has started, we missed the rapture. We missed it, we're here, we're going to have to go through it now, that's the deal, we're in the day of the Lord. And and Paul wrote this letter to say, no, that's not the case. It has not happened yet. And then he gives insight as to when it will happen. Let no one in any way deceive you, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The apostasy. That word apostasy is fascinating to me. It it has two meanings. It either means falling away, or it means literally being like caught up, pulled away, taken away. So the word may imply the rapture of the church as much as it implies the falling away of the world religious body. Can be both. But Paul says either way, Antichrist will not come until that happens. And he says, And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Which is why I said last week, the temple will be rebuilt. Because the Bible says at that point, Antichrist is going to enter the temple. It'll be three and a half years into that tribulation period. Where are you getting all this stuff, Rick? Revelation study, it's online, go through it. Okay, It's all there. And we get much more specific about it. But the temple will be standing again at that time. Displaying himself as being God. He says, do you not remember I was still with you? I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Who is he who now restrains? I believe it's the Holy Spirit working and functioning through the church. Gang, there's an interesting dynamic in the church today. If you give your life to Jesus Christ, guess what? You get filled with His Spirit. He promises that. You're filled with the Spirit of God. You have the indwelling Spirit of God with you. But there's another dynamic that goes beyond that, and it's the fact that the Holy Spirit functions over the whole church. It's more than just you or me speaking for Jesus. It's that collective, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together, I'm there. There is a greater power. There is a power in numbers. The power and the growth of the church and the way that the church is spread out through the world that maintains some semblance of morality, that holds back the tide of, of rushing evil, that really functions to do it. It's why we said at the beginning, why do a church on North Whidbey Island? There needs to be light here. There needs to be a restraining influence here to what Satan in the spiritual realm is even trying to do. So I absolutely believe that's what we're talking about in the restraining influence. But when the restraining influence is taken out, when the church is caught up, and the Holy Spirit goes with the church, doesn't mean God won't still be doing His thing. But it'll be a different dynamic at that time. And then, verse 8, that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of its coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs of false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Why I read that is because I believe that the church will be pulled out before Antichrist rises. So we're not going to see Him. We're not going to see Him. But let me ask you a more important question. Because a lot of people today are in the church are looking for Antichrist. They're watching all these signs, these things that we're talking about. They're checking the signs in the timetable for Antichrist coming. But here's the question. If you wonder will we see Antichrist before he comes, I have to ask, why does it matter? 
Really. I just wasted the last 15-20 minutes of your life. You'll never get it back. (laughs) Who cares what Antichrist looks like? Who who cares if we're going to see him or not? In fact, all these bullet points on prophecy update. Now don't misunderstand me. I think it's important, and Jesus called us to be students of the times, to be aware of the signs of the times. But honestly, when it really comes down to it, we have wasted the last two Sundays unless we understand one thing. The word or title Antichrist can mean a couple of things. It can mean against Christ, which is what we assume, adversary to Christ. One who sets himself up in opposition to Christ. Anti-Christ. And John says in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it's the last hour. He says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Gang, John illuminates this truth. There are spirits at work in the world that are in league with Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist. The same spirit, I believe, that, that got on Hitler's back. The same spirit, I believe, that was on Nero. That was on Haman. The same spirit who has always been anti-Israel and anti-Christ has been at work and is now at work in the world. That same spirit... Let me ask you this. Think back when you, before you gave your life to Jesus, you who have done so. Do you remember having a hard time doing it at first? Maybe you first heard about it. First heard about church. And your attitude toward church was just... Don't want that. Don't need that. And then you'd hear friends talk about it. You just kind of, I don't know. And maybe you didn't. If you grew up going to church, maybe you didn't have that experience. But I'll tell you something. There is a spirit in the spiritual realm that is at work trying to deny Christ to people. Which is why, as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, we need to be intercessors. We need to be praying against that. Praying for the revelation of Jesus in this world because there are spirits at work trying to keep that name down, trying to hold him down. John said in 2 John 7, As many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So Antichrist, the man, will rise, but there is also a spirit of Antichrist that's already at work. The mystery of lawlessness, Paul said, is already at work. It's already going on. It's just restrained right now. But I want you to get this. We need to personalize this. Antichrist doesn't just mean against Christ or adversary to Christ. It also means another Christ. Another Christ. Instead of Christ. Antichrist's lure is going to be coming to the world saying, not that he's anti, anti anti-Jesus, but he's another Jesus. He's a new Messiah. And he's come into this world to take the place of. Because, you know, that other Jesus thing, obviously, you Christians, it's really not working for you. And, well, actually, <laughs> we may be gone at that point. And he'll be telling the world, and here, this is completely surmise on my part. Okay, this is not Bible, this is Rick. But I think Antichrist will be telling the world, see, they're all gone. They got sucked out. <laughs> because they stink, man. We're the, good, we're the ones who are here. We're the ones. And I'm the one sent to lead you. They all got pulled away. Maybe aliens did it, I don't know another Christ he will offer intriguing ideas influential speech and veiled hope but here's the deeper implication for us personally this morning man we could go through prophecy updates and get all kinds of really cool things that we find out about what's going on prophetically 
And we can be sharper in watching the news and more clearly seeing what the Bible has to say, and that's all well and good. But if you miss this, you miss the whole point. We began this morning in the story of the transfiguration in Matthew 17 for a reason. Peter saw Jesus glorified, a preview of the coming kingdom, of the king in all of his glory. And Peter also saw Elijah and Moses. And what did he do? Magnanimously, I'm sure Peter thought, all three of these guys are great. And I want to build a tabernacle for Moses and Elijah. And you too, Jesus. This is the same guy who one chapter before said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet when met with this fantastic vision... I think Peter in his own mind is elevating Jesus to the position of Moses and Elijah. Hey, I'll build one for all three of you, Lord. And out of heaven boomed a voice, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him! Well, so you're saying God shouted that? Well, I know it was loud enough that Peter, James, and John dropped to their knees, terrified out of their minds. <laughs> this is my boy! Okay, all right, okay. Watch what happens. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground. They were terrified. And Jesus came up to them and touched them and said, Get up. Do not be afraid. Can you imagine Peter looking up? The vision's over. Moses is gone. Elijah's gone. Jesus is not transfigured any longer. He's not in that glorified state. He's just there in his robes. Man, quietly tapping Peter on the shoulder. Get up. The Bible tells us, lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus Himself alone. Here's the point. We are not looking for Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. And we can know all these things, and I encourage you to study Scripture and be aware of what the Word has to say about this world. Be keen to the signs of the times, because they tell us the end is near. He's right at the door. But look for Jesus. Look for Jesus Christ. John said in 1 John 3, Beloved, now we're children of God. It has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we'll be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. We can have a tendency as Christians to get all wrapped around the axle about end time stuff. Now, it excites me, and I love to talk about it, and I could spend the rest of my life just teaching Revelation over and over and over again. But Jesus is the whole focus. And He's the reason that we look at these things. And it amazes me, 60 years after the Transfiguration, there on Mount Hermon, I, I believe, when Peter and James and John saw this amazing vision, John saw Jesus glorified again in the revelatory vision that we read at the beginning of the study. And when he saw Him... Wow, he's blown away and he watches all these things take place. He writes it down for us, the apocalypso, the revealing, so that we can see what's going on. And then John, just like Peter, now John is 90 plus years old, wizened with age, mature, a strong believer, in love with the Lord, and he makes the same brief mistake Peter made on the Mount of Transfiguration. Same thing. Revelation 19.10, John said, I fell at the angel's feet to worship him. (laughs) And he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. You worship God, man. Worship the God, man. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
John, at 90 plus years of age, needed that reminder. It is about Jesus. It's not about some angel. It's not about Moses or Elijah or any world ruler. It is about Jesus. He is the entire focus. He's the point. He's the center. Is there another Christ in your life? Is there another Messiah that you're looking to? Is there another hope that you're leaning on? Is there another source of strength? Maybe it's a spouse that you think is going to be the one to take care of you, meet your needs, and get you where you need to go. Maybe it's a a parent that you think is going to take care of all the stuff going on and so you don't have to worry. Or a bank account, although in these days maybe not. What is your hope? Where, Where are you resting all of your security? That careless security. Is there someone or something other than Christ on which you're placing your hope? I spent the last week, started off unsure where we were going to go today because I had already studied a lot of the stuff out and then changed direction when the Gaza stuff happened and saw Zephaniah and all that. So we talked about that last week, put this off for this week. But as the week started, I began thinking about all this and going, okay, but it's, it's a bunch of interesting things. But where's the application, Lord? What, what are you saying here to this fellowship? And, and then what I got, and this is, I'll just share with you, this is what happened to me. Jesus said, well, it's not really what I want to say to this fellowship, Rick. It's what I want to say to you. Okay. <laughs> and I fell to the ground terrified. <laughs> and the reality, gang, is I don't know anyone more selfish than me. And I've really struggled with that this week. Almost everything I do is self centered, revolves around what I want to accomplish, how I want to spend my day, how I want to, to, to achieve things in life. And hey, I'm a product of Western culture. We're a self-centered culture. This is how we're raised. Everything orbits Almighty Me. It's a very different mindset than the Hebrew mindset. We've talked about Hebrew mindset, Greek mindset. Greek is all about self, the elevation of man. Hebrew was all about God is at the center. And no matter what is happening in your life, listen to me. No matter what is happening in your life, no matter how bad or terrifying or horrible it may seem, guess what? It is not about you. It's about God. He is at the center. The fact that we have taken one breath is a blessing from Him. The fact that I've had five minutes of life is a blessing from Him. The fact that I have children that I can enjoy and be around, it's a blessing from Him. But He is the center. He is the focus. A Christ-centered mentality. This is the thing that I'm praying for more than anything else. Let me Give me that Hebrew mindset, Lord, so that I look at the world and everything not around me, but around You. I want to be in the audience. I want to be at the throne casting crowns and just praising, praising, praising. None of us are even looking at each other because it's all Him. That's the issue. And when we do prophecy updates, gang, Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is also that we look to Him and our lives shift in that direction. And it is a major, major paradigm shift that I'm talking about. Because if you're anything like me, you have spent your life in selfishness. And I know some of you are very altruistic, giving, loving, serving people. But you know, 
We are human beings who think about the self. Who is your Christ? When Peter, James, and John looked up, they saw Jesus Himself alone. Who is your Christ? Who are you looking to? Father, we pray this morning. We pray for that paradigm shift. We pray that You will alter our perception of reality. Lord Jesus, that You would take these lives of ours that we sometimes think so highly of and You would alter them to be all about You, vessels useful for You and You alone. Father, I I pray for those among us who don't think highly of themselves but in their martyrdom and their victimization of themselves are still just as selfish as I am. We pray, Lord, will You remove the self in favor of Christ's likeness, in favor of Christ's centeredness. Lord, that we would walk out of here a changed people, not from one Sunday to the next or to the next Wednesday, but moment by moment, centering our thoughts and our hopes and our dreams and our desires and our will on You, Lord Jesus. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.